So Jesus, I say this often, and that's we believe in the Holy Spirit. And we believe that uh, we want to honor the Holy Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, we know that we can't, we can't understand the Bible. Uh, I mean, we can understand it with our brains, but we can't understand it in the deepest part of our souls unless your Holy Spirit's active right now in our hearts, in our minds, in the ears of our hearts, in the eyes of our hearts. So, Holy Spirit, would you open up all of our eyes? all of our ears, so we can see and hear what you want to say to us. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, the question today, we'll just start with this. Uh, one of the questions Jesus asked at one time in, in the, one of the gospel stories, he asked, who do you say that I am? Who, who am I? Who do you say that I am? And if, you, if I had, which I don't, if I had the technology to do man-on-the-street interviews, It'd be really neat to ask this question. Who's Jesus? Who did you say he is? Who is he? Well, you might get all kinds of answers. Um, some would say he is a really great teacher, which he was. Some would say that. Some would say he's a, he was a great social activist for the poor and the disenfranchised, which he was, right? Some would say he was a great humanitarian. Uh, I talked to a Buddhist monk one time, and he said Jesus was an enlightened one among many enlightened ones. Some might, we may not say this, some of us, but sometimes we treat Jesus as if he's our psychologist and we can take whatever advice he gives us or not, all right? So we, we, we don't say that, but we kind of, you know, we have, so there's all kinds of th- ways we think about Jesus and the way we think about who he is shapes who we are, all right? Here's two of my favorite ones, though. This is just f- for fun. This is American Jesus. You can't really see that well, but it's Jesus with an American flag. And behind him is Donald Trump and John Wayne. That's the American Jesus for some people. Um, Jesus doesn't wrap himself in the American flag. I always, Jesus is not concerned about the U.S. government. He's concerned about his people. So I'm, I'm, I'm saying this in jest, but I, um, I worked at a church one time, and I insisted they take the American flag off the platform, not because I'm not patriotic, but because if we're going to have one flag, have every country's flag up there because Jesus is not an American, right? He loves America, he loves us, but he loves his people, he loves the church. The other one, though, is uh, on the other side of the political spectrum. This is the revolutionary Jesus who came simply to be a political activist and uh, change things. And he's neither, he's neither one of these, those. Because Jesus will not let us put him into a mold that's not him. So when he asks, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that he is? Your answer and my answer, if we're honest will dictate a huge part of how we then are changed. Because if he's just political Jesus or American Jesus or psychiatrist Jesus or teacher Jesus or activist Jesus, we can give or take. We don't have to listen to what he says, but we like it, blah, blah, blah. But if he's more than that, it shapes who we are, right? So we've been doing a series, go to the next slide, we've been doing a series from the Gospel of Matthew called Follow Jesus. Uh, There's no one like him. And I say that uh, not like in a trite way, but Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, had been a hated tax collector working for the Roman government, becomes an unlikely follower of Jesus, and he is laser-focused in the whole Gospel of Matthew of helping people see, us, see, there's no one like Jesus. He is unique. He is the one and only he talks about his genealogy, he talks about the miracles of Jesus, all these things. But Matthew is 
dead set on helping us see that there's no one like Jesus. Which will, if you even come to that opinion, then following him has a whole different ramification, all right? So we've, I've been going through chapters at a time, and we skipped ahead during Easter, and now we're kind of uh, in the middle of Matthew. So we're in Matthew 16, and today I want to talk about a passage. Uh, so I don't, I don't do the whole chapter. I just kind of highlight on some things. And there's a part of this passage where Jesus is talking about as the anointed one. Now, you, you, you don't see that initially, but we'll just, I'll talk about it, and let's just kind of go there. So let's go to this next phrase. This is Matthew 16, and I'll... We'll get to the anointed one in a second. This is the start of the chapter. Matthew tells us this. One day the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these are these guys. The religious elite thought they had it all figured out. We're all concerned about image. We can be that way, right? They came to test Jesus, and they demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven. Read those next four words with me out loud. To prove his authority. All right? Jesus, you have to prove your authority. We have to prove that you have the authority to tell us what to do. And if we're honest, sometimes we bucket the authority of Jesus. But the, prove it. Prove it to us. And then the rest, the, the middle of the chapter, Jesus interacts with them, and he won't give in to their demand. He's like, I'm not going to play your game, because they wouldn't have submitted to his authority anyway. All right? But then he comes to a point in the middle of the chapter where he's talking with his disciples over here. All right, so, so Jesus is talking to them now, and again, gets to this question of who do people say that I am? And he says, he asks the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Son of Man was a term that Jesus used about himself. It was also an Old Testament term that was understood to mean the Messiah. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So they're kind of like... You're this Jesus, you're that, you know, you're, you're this, you're that. You're, you're a good moral teacher, you're a prophet. All right, and then Jesus asked the next question. Okay, go to the next slide. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, always the one who seemed to speak up the first and often would put his foot in his mouth, but this time he doesn't. Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And I have in yellow squared in the word the Christ, because I want to talk about that, all right? So in this particular passage, when he says the Christ, the original language there is basically the anointed one. Sometimes it's translated as the Messiah, the Christ, but the Christ is the anointed one. Now let me go back to the Old Testament on this before, so we can understand why this is a big deal. So in the Old Testament, kings and priests were anointed with oil. Um, it had to be a special kind of oil. There wasn't seem to be any magical qualities, but it was simply that was, it was almost the equivalent of putting a crown on a king. You know, King David and King Saul were both anointed by Samuel. They pour the oil on their head, often in a round pattern like a crown, and it establishes they have authority. Priests in the Old Testament, book of Leviticus, when they were consecrated or set apart as a priest for God's people, they were often anointed to, again, say they are set apart 
with a certain kind of authority. All right, we're back to that word authority that the Pharisees were challenging him on. All right. But, and then the rest of the Old Testament talks about the anointed one, kind of capital A, capital O, that was going to come and he was going to be the king. The book of Daniel talks about the anointed one. The book of Psalms talks often about the anointed one. And it was always referring to the expected Messiah who was going to come. They thought, they thought he was going to come and kick out the Roman, the Roman uh, occupation, just like Nazis occupied Germany. They were going to kick out the Romans, and the, the, the anointed one would kind of put their lives back together so they wouldn't have to deal with the Romans anymore. All right? So when Peter says, you are the anointed one, the word Christ is not Jesus' last name. The word Christ literally means the anointed one. All right, so you are Jesus, the anointed one. You are the king. You have authority. You have authority that comes straight from God. So when Peter says that, it's a big deal. Because he's not saying, well, you're a good teacher, good activist, good spiritual leader. No, you are, the, you are it. Now, so I, so I thought, well, let's look through the book of Matthew where this term, this anointed one shows up. And then we'll kind of ask the question, what do we do with that? All right, so this is this one. Next slide. This is Matthew chapter 1, the very beginning of Matthew. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, same original word, anointed one. This is the record of the ancestors of Jesus, the anointed one. So again, Matthew is showing there's nobody like this guy. He is the Messiah. Some translations will translate the Messiah. Some will say the Christ. The the original word in Greek is the same word, the anointed one. This is the record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, descendant of David and Abraham. Next one. This is all in Matthew. Matthew chapter 2. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. This is about Jesus about ready to be born. All right, the wise men talked to Herod. Jesus, he was troubled, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes and the people, he inquired of them where the anointed one, the Christ, was to be born, because he knew that there was enough in the Old Testament prophecies about the anointed one, this king, was going to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. So again, the anointed one. Next one. This is Matthew chapter 11. This is John the Baptist. He's in prison. He's been preparing the way for Jesus all along, but Jesus isn't doing what he thought he was supposed to do in kicking out the Romans. He was a different kind of leader. And says John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ was doing. And he sent his disciples and asked, are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Are you the anointed one we've been expecting? Because that was deeply woven into the Jewish psyche. We're expecting an anointed one who is going to just change everything. Or should we keep looking for someone else? A few more from Matthew. Same word. Then a high priest said to him, this was when Jesus was arrested and being tried. They were about to crucify him and they were trying him for blasphemy because he said he was God. He said he was like something that they didn't think he was. The high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the anointed one, capital A, capital O, you are the Messiah, if you are the Christ. And of course, the priests asked that almost mockingly because they didn't believe it anyway. But Jesus says, you've said it. 
I am. I am the Messiah, the Christ, the capital A, anointed, capital O, one. I am the anointed one. But he just leaves it there. Next one. This is, again, part of the mock trial. This is now Pilate. After he's, you know, the Jews turn him over to Pilate. Pilate works for Rome, responds to the crowd who are saying they should release Barabbas. And he says, okay, so what do I do with Jesus, who is called the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ? Even Pilate, who was not even Jewish, he understood this is what the, the, the challenge was about. Is this guy the anointed one? Is he the, the one? And they shouted back, crucify him. Crucify him. So this whole idea of Jesus, again, Christ is not his last name. It's a title. He is the anointed one. He is the anointed one. Now, I'm going to stop for a second and go back to the book of, or go to the book of Hebrews and the book of Psalm, then we'll kind of rewind some stuff. Hebrews chapter 1 talks about the uniqueness of Jesus, all right? There's no one like him. And in kind of building the argument in Hebrews chapter 1, the writer to Hebrews actually quotes from Psalm 45, but he includes it in Hebrews 1, 9, and this is what he says. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you, the same word. He has Christed you. He has Messiahed you, about Jesus pouring out the oil of joy on you more than on anyone else. That phrase, that last phrase, kind of blows me away when you think about it. Jesus was anointed by God, not simply for authority. Yes, he has that. Not simply because he's a king. Yes, he has that. But he's anointed who has more pouring out the oil of joy on you more than anyone else. He is the most joyous being in the universe. So yeah, he's the king. He has power. Yes, he's the king. He has authority. Yes, he's the anointed one. It all comes from God, but the fuel in his engine is joy. We don't, we don't think of it that way. We, when people don't want, when people buck against authority, we just think the authority is against us. But this is an authority Authority. This is an anointed one on whom God has poured out the oil of joy more than anyone else. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to go back to those same verses from Matthew, and we're going to in insert this kind of thinking into the same verse. Because, again, we think of the anointed one. Yes, it's a spiritual thing. It's an authority. But let's think of it in terms of uh, he has more joy than anybody else, all right? So I'm going to rewind back to the first one. This is Matthew 16, the passage we started with. Jesus says, you say that I am. Simon Peter replied, you are the one anointed with more joy than anybody else. You are the one anointed with more joy than anybody else. All right, next one. This is Matthew chapter 1. This is the record of the ancestors of Jesus the one anointed with more joy than anybody else in the entire universe. Next one, Matthew 2. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where is the one who's been anointed with more joy than anybody else? Where's he going to be born? Of course, Herod didn't use it that way. But the Messiah, the anointed one, where is the one who's going to have more joy than any human being who's walked the earth before or since? Where is he going to be born? 
Next one. Matthew chapter 11. John the Baptist, who is in prison. All right, so here he's in a bad situation. Heard about all the things the one who was anointed with more joy than anybody else was doing. All right. And when John used that term, the, the Messiah one, joy probably seemed quite elusive to him. He's in prison. He's going to lose his head soon, literally. But he was like, I want to know, are you the one who's anointed with more joy than anybody else? Because I don't understand what you're doing. I still believe you have more joy than anybody else. All right? Or, or should we keep John? So should I look for somebody else? Because I think what this gets at is, the, I think the core of the human heart in terms of spiritual reality is, is joy is like something we desperately hunger for. Not just happiness, not just distractions. We let those be cheap substitutes. But joy is this kind of solidness of soul that no matter what happens, there's a, there's a hope and a, and a gladness about you that defies reality and logic. Right? What does it mean to have be that kind of person? A few more. Same verse we talked about before. Then the high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the one anointed with more joy than anybody else. Of course, he didn't ask it that way. It would almost seem humorous if he did. Tell us, Jesus, are you the one who's been anointed with more joy than anybody else? And Jesus is like, yes, yes, you said it. That's me. All right, last one. This is now Pilate. Again, part of the mock trial. Pilate responded to the people who were shouting for Jesus to be crucified. What should I do with Jesus who's been anointed with joy more than anybody else? And they shout back, crucify him. Crucify him. So, Go to the next slide, the last, which is my last one, I think, yeah. So when Jesus says many times over in the Gospel of Matthew, follow me, I, I tell people the words, when he says follow me, it's interchangeable because Jesus does this different times. It's interchangeable with obey me. Obey what I'm saying to do. So when Jesus says love your enemies, do good to those who hurt you, when Jesus talks about our money, when he talks about our sexuality, Following Jesus means to obey him. And the word obey can sound kind of heavy sometimes because it feels like authority that has a control over us. You know, you've got to obey this person. I'm going to follow this person. I'm going to obey him because they're an authority. But I think it spins differently if I say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to obey you because you have more joy than anyone else. And if you're there in the place of great joy, I want to follow you there. And so whatever you tell me to do or not do along the way is not simply because you're just powering up your authority. It's because I believe you're leading me to joy. Because, again, we, we tend to think obedience and authority, those are heavy words. But it's like, no, if you look at Jesus and I follow Jesus... I've never said this. Maybe if somebody asked me, I'll try to say it sometime. No, I follow Jesus because I think he has the most joy of anybody else that's ever lived on a human planet. That's why I follow him. Because he has more joy 
than any of his companions have ever had. If you, if you frame it that way, obedience to not obey is foolish. Because why would I not follow someone to the fountain of deep joy that the world can't take away? And it's the place that every single one of us, if we knew what that was totally like, every one of us would run there. Because that's what we all hunger for. We don't, we don't hunger for happiness. Yes, we want that. We don't hunger for distractions. We hunger for our souls to be full of deep and abiding, and Jesus calls it abundant joy. He even says it's, it's joy that overflows like a fountain to other people. So when Jesus says, you know, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, forgive those who've hurt you, when he talks about what you should do with your money, when he talks about how you should handle your sexuality and your sexual habits, when he talks about honoring your parents and those kind of things, it's like he's saying that because he's leading us to the place of joy. And that makes a whole different, for me, and I think for hope for you too, it makes a whole different take on obedience. Because why would I not obey somebody who's leading me to that place? I may, it may not make sense along the way. Like, why, why, do I have to, why, why do I have to love my enemies? Why do I have to forgive this person? They hurt me deeply. But Jesus is like, well, if you, if you want to go to the place of abundant joy in your soul, you, you, you need to. If you don't want to go there, you don't have to. But it's whether or not we believe that Jesus is the one anointed with more joy than anybody else. So... Skip, go back to the one, the very next, the slide right before this. This will be a, go one more back actually. Yeah, this will be good. This will be a good way to lead into communion because the path that Jesus had to walk through was the path of his arrest, his torture, his death, and his resurrection. But it was the pathway, you know, and the high priest said, are you the one? Are you the one, the Messiah, the Christ? Are you the one anointed with more joy than anybody else? And he says, yes, I am. You've said it. So, and he didn't fight it. He didn't buck the arrest because he knew that going through the cross to the resurrection um, Scripture actually says in the book of Hebrews, because the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Because of the joy set before him. Not because, because he knew he had to, because we're hopeful, hopeless, worthless sinners. It's because he saw the joy set before him. Because he saw that set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And the scripture says he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Because of joy. Um, because of joy. So when we take communion today, um, how we do communion, and I'll explain it, and then we'll take it in a minute. Aaron's going to come up and lead us in a few songs. And when we do communion, we just come on up to the front. We don't dismiss by rows. You come up whenever you want to during the songs. And uh, we offer you the bread. You take a wafer. And then what we do here is we just dip the wafer in the cup, and most people eat it right away. Some go back to their seats. up to you. But uh, he said, remember me when you do this. Remember me. 
There's tons of things we could remember. Here's what I want you to remember today. Remember that he is anointed with the oil of joy more than anybody else. So when you're inviting this symbolically and mystically into your body, you're saying to Jesus, I want that. I'll follow you. I want that joy. I will follow you. Because that's why we do this. We don't, it's, no, it's not a magical pill. It's, it's, a, it's an act of your will that makes the symbol into this supernatural mystery. I will follow you because that's what you, you're anointed with joy more than anybody else. So let me pray. Aaron, come on up and get ready to lead, and I'll pray. So Jesus, I am, uh, I'm guessing it's probably true, and it's probably true of all of us in some degrees, but some maybe immediately right now where there's wrestling and struggling about whether or not to obey you, um, which is really a way to wrestle with how, whether we follow you. And like we've said today, it's whether or not we believe you do lead to joy, that obeying you leads to joy. Sometimes we believe that obeying you leads to being stifled or stuffed or depressed. But if you've been anointed with the oil of joy more than anybody else, if that's true, if that's true, we know, Jesus, we're fools not to obey you. Because that's what we want. We want fullness of joy in our spirits. So, Jesus, we're grateful that you, Scripture tells us, because the joy set before you endured the cross. And then you sat down at the right hand of the Father. So, even what we do today, some people call it communion, some call it the Eucharist, but it is a pathway to joy for us today. And we love you, Jesus, and we ask this all in your name. Amen.